This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode of New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm one of the hosts on the channel, Dr. Miranda Melcher. And I'm very curious and excited today to be interviewing Dr. Kate Guthrie about her book titled The Art of Appreciation, Music and Middlebrow Culture in Modern Britain, which was published by the University of California Press in 2021. In the book, Dr. Guthrie examines for the first time, really, how and why music appreciation has had such a defining and long-lasting impact well beyond its initial roots in late Victorian liberalism. The book focuses on the decades from the 1920s when rapid advances in sound reproduction enabled new patterns of musical dissemination and consumption, all the way to the early 1960s when the burgeoning popular youth culture presented a new challenge to this idea of what is highbrow versus lowbrow music appreciation. Um, And of course, during that time period, a lot of other things are happening that impact music appreciation and art appreciation. Um, So this is a great example of a book that is about one particular subject that in fact tells us a lot about a time period um, and a bunch of different sort of cultures and societies. So I'm really excited to be talking today to Dr. Kate Guthrie about her book. Hi Miranda, I'm also really excited to be here. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast and uh, yeah, thank you for your interest in my work as well. So to start us off, could you please introduce yourself a bit, your academic background and explain to us how that led you to write this book. Yeah, sure. So, um, yeah, as you said, I'm uh, Dr. Kate Guthrie. I'm currently a lecturer in the music department at the University of Bristol. Um, But the story of this book begins way, way earlier than that. Um, Really in, in, uh, yeah, well, I guess there are two origins. So one of them uh, has to do with the subject matter and the other one has to do with the approach that I've taken. And the subject matter story, as it were, really begins uh, in uh, my yeah with my time at school um, and my experience of classical music growing up and then conversely what I experienced when I went to university and um, so when I was a kid I started uh, having violin lessons at the age of six and um, they were offering free music lessons in my school and, and my headmistress basically twisted my mum's arm uh, into yeah encouraging me to take up the violin and it quickly became apparent that I really enjoyed music and was quite good at it. So carried on playing all through my teenage years, spent a lot of time in orchestras playing, you know, Mozart symphonies, Beethoven symphonies, um, the occasional bigger work, you know, like Tchaikovsky, uh, Rachmaninoff. Um, so, yeah, I basically grew up playing all this kind of, um, you know, wonderful 18th, 19th century music. 
decided that I wanted to study music at university uh, and I got a place at Cambridge. And when I went to university, I found that when we were talking in that course about music in the 20th century, none of the stuff that we studied had any relationship or sort of bore any resemblance to the music that I'd grown up playing and loving. Um, most of the stuff that we studied in the kind of under this banner of 20th century music was this really difficult, um, obscure modernist music, you know, stuff by the likes of Stockhausen and Boulez uh, that, yeah, not very many people listen to and certainly that I'd never encountered previously. And whilst it was exciting to, you know, discover a whole new realm of music, I really felt that there was a disconnect between like, my experience of what I played growing up and my experience of, you know, being a person listening to playing music in late 20th century Britain and between the narrative of music history that I was given at university. Um, I was also, yeah, I guess then I also developed a quite a specific interest in British music history. Um, and British music history is interesting because I guess we didn't have modernism here in a big way in music like they did on the continent. Um, and consequently, you know, when the history of 20th century music's been told, British music's often been sidelined or left out altogether. So I was in this funny situation where also, you know, the music that I was interested in, the country I was interested in and the music I was interested in writing about didn't fit within this modernist narrative of 20th century music history. So really, you know, out of that, I wanted to, when I started this project, to write a history of music in 20th century Britain that came closer to ordinary people's experiences, that was closer to what my own experience had been growing up. Um, yeah, and that explored classical music as it was experienced by regular listeners and, you know, not just by academics working in elitist institutions. So th I guess that combination of things led to my the sort of subject matter for the book, this particular interest in the history of music education um, and, yeah, the music that was being promoted uh, through concert halls. Um, and, yeah, and that the kind of general public were being encouraged to listen to. So that's the sort of first origin story. The second origin story um, has to do with methodology and approach. Um, and this, uh, I guess, really accounts for the, you know, uh, I guess what to me feels like a relatively broad time frame um, for the project itself. So when I, uh, after I'd done my degree at Cambridge, um, I ended up going on to do a PhD at King's College London, where I had an absolutely amazing PhD supervisor. It was really, yeah, like an amazingly broad knowledge of music history, in, incredibly committed to his students. Um, and uh, who was also very committed to microhistory. Um, and I think the thing that probably best captures this, when I um, started studying with him, I remember meeting somebody at a conference um, and I said, oh, I'm studying with this person at KCL. And their response was, oh, what city and what year? In this you know, fairly sarcastic tone. Um, because, yeah, I mean, he'd had a whole phase of, of PhD students who'd studied, you know, had done a project that was like 1870s Paris. Um, so, yeah, so I was very much working with, with somebody who at this time was incredibly committed to microhistory. And I think you can, you know, the impact of that is still very much felt in the book. Um, the central chapters of it, you know, are a series of kind of microhistorical case studies, um, you know, looking at particular works or particular organisations at specific moments um, across this period from the 1920s to the 1960s. But I guess that, you know, at the same time as I was learning to appreciate the value of this kind of thick historical writing, um, I was also becoming increasingly aware of the ways in which, you know, the stories that are told about music um, and the kinds of values that are invested in it seem to resonate across much longer time periods. So my PhD was specifically about the Second World War. Um, but I, you know, I kept in the stuff I was reading from uh, sort of, you know, 
late 19th century, early 20th century, uh, you know, was in, encountering people talking about music in the same way that they did in the 1940s. And then again, you know, I was also becoming more critically engaged with my own uh, music tuition that I'd had growing up, and particularly thinking about the kinds of messages that I'd had from my violin teacher and from my piano teacher, uh, who were, again, I mean, amazing musicians, but both very committed uh, to, you know, the kinds of great composers and great works narratives. Um, so, yeah, my own experience of studying music in late 20th century Britain also resonated with some of these narratives that I saw in the 1940s and that, you know, that I'd seen even in the decades before then. So, yeah, I guess at some point I realised that actually what I wanted to do was to write a project that, yes, had that um, all the kind of rich depth that you get from a microhistorical study, but that set that in balance with something that was a kind of broader perspective that sought to draw out continuities and uh, yeah similarities in themes across a much bigger time period um so yeah what I ended up with in the book was you know the, the sort of central case study chapters that are really focused on these four decades five decades the 20s 30s 40s 50s and 60s but that you know framed either side of that with an introduction that was you know looking at gesturing back to the roots of these debates in the late 19th century in Victorian liberalism um, and then in the epilogue, you know, right forward to the proms today uh, and their kind of legacy for contemporary society. Um, yeah, so I guess those are the two uh, quite different stories about about how I ended up writing this specific book. Having read the book, it's really lovely to hear that explained because it absolutely makes sense with what I read. Um, and I can say that it really helped as someone who does not have a PhD in music um, to have those sort of broad themes that you could see in the first few chapters and sort of trace the way through but then also be able to go into depth in the case studies um, and see how that looked in practice so I think that that combination actually made the book much more accessible to a wider audience um, because it had the detail that those of us who are not music experts otherwise wouldn't be able to bring to it um, but had these themes as you said that went through that I could go oh yeah I've been to the proms I know what that is okay that gives me a way in um, or someone, as you said, I'm sure, uh, studied violin as a child, that gives you a way in as well. Um, so it's lovely to hear that kind of those were things that really informed the book, because they do really thread throughout it. Um, and as an interviewer, quite conveniently, give me a great structure for the rest of the interview. So I would love to turn to one of those sort of themes to start off with, which is right in the title, this whole idea of art appreciation. What does that actually mean as a phrase, um, particularly for the figures and debates that you introduce us to in the book? Yeah, so um, great question. The, so I guess the art appreciation is understood by these people as, uh, I guess, what I would term a mode of reception. Um, so it's like a way of listening to music and uh, very specifically that's premised on this idea that you can get a kind of intellectual enjoyment out of music. Um, so one of the founders of, of the um, music appreciation movement described it as being able to listen to, and these are his words, quote, a seriously conceived piece of music without bewilderment. Um, so right from the start, there's this idea of expanding taste that's built into the idea of appreciation, that as you, yeah, you sit down and, and listen to a piece of music um, sort of attentively, and that you have certain analytical tools at your disposal, um, like you might be able to 
um, understand something about uh, melodic organization structure, uh, about harmony, about the form of the piece, that that kind of analytical knowledge will help you to have a sort of serious enjoyment of what you're listening to. Um, but yeah, that through that, ultimately, you'd be able to enjoy like ever more complicated music. Um, and I think it's quite important to understand. So this, the idea that you uh, could appreciate music in a sort of intelligent way is very much a product of this particular moment um, in the late 19th, early 20th century, when you've got a, a number of different sort of changes happening within society. So one of those is the, um, you know, developments in sound reproduction technologies. So the gramophone and uh, the radio being the kind of earliest examples of those, which really make it possible to distribute music on a completely unprecedented scale. Um, and what this does, uh, yeah, is it so it makes it possible for classical music to be brought to new audiences which has a lot of potential in it but there's also all these anxieties that grow uh, around this that accompany this new these new technologies that people aren't going to be listening to music in the kind of serious proper way that they would if they were for example in a concert hall um and so yeah it's i i guess the sort of flip side or counterpart to art appreciation is um, this idea of listening to, and this is mostly associated with popular music, um, although obviously in practice uh, people can listen to popular music in, a, in an attentive way too, but this idea that you know the general public are suddenly have all this popular music available on the radio and on gramophone records, that this kind of music is really easy, it's got all these like simple catchy tunes, there's not really any depth to it, and that this is encouraging them to listen in a way that's just sort of superficial and also I guess like the possibility of you know you can switch the radio on in the background whilst you're doing the washing up or cleaning your sitting room um, and this idea of yeah like just having music on tap that feels these real anxieties that people aren't going to be taking music seriously I guess in short that they'll they'll start listening to classical music in the same way that they listen to popular music so art appreciation music appreciation is really imagined as a, a kind of corrective to that and a way of um, yeah encouraging the general public to stop and take their listening to classical music more seriously. And this goes really nicely into something again that's also in the title, this idea of middlebrow culture, right? You've already sort of talked about almost a dichotomy between popular music and classical music and sort of, well, what are people who, I mean, the subtext very much is who don't know better um, will approach Kind of classical music, the greats, as you mentioned in your introduction. So given that we often hear about a sort of highbrow culture or lowbrow culture, um, your title talks about middlebrow culture. Can you introduce us to what you mean by this? Yeah, um, thank you. It's another very pertinent question. Um, so I guess in a, in a sort of the like literal sense, um, the idea of middlebrow culture is stuff that falls in between highbrow and lowbrow. So if highbrow is um, your sort of, yeah, like elitist, modernist, you know, difficult, inaccessible music and popular culture or lowbrow is, you know, your popular culture, that middlebrow is stuff that doesn't fit so easily into either category. Um, I mean, what actually what actually constitutes middlebrow music massively depends on the perspective of the person who's um, sort of assessing the value of a given piece. Um, so, yeah, I guess to give an example, um, something take something like uh, Rachmaninoff or Tchaikovsky. So these are like composers from the late 19th, early 20th century who were writing big orchestral works that have really, uh, often have really catchy tunes um, that are 
you know, thick, luscious orchestral scoring. And that kind of music um, becomes very, is sort of taken on, you know, within the context of uh, golden era Hollywood. Uh, and, you know, it's used as an inspiration for the soundtracks there. So you have this interesting situation where something, some, a composer like Tchaikovsky or Rachmaninoff, within the context of a Hollywood movie, might stand for highbrow culture, for this sort of, yeah, glamorous, knowledgeable, elitist, you know, great tradition of classical music. Whereas from the perspective of some of the music educators that I write about, um, this kind of late 19th century music had all the trappings of overly accessible popular culture. Um, and so, you know, for them, that would be not highbrow at all, but would be uncomfortably middlebrow. Um, so, yeah, it describes stuff that's between high and low, but but it, but that isn't a kind of, um, you know, I couldn't give you like a fixed list of what that is, because it really depends on the perspective of the person looking at it. Um, I guess the other thing I wanted to say about this is that I, I think in the book that Middlebrow is definitely not just about pieces of music. Um, I've tried to use the term to describe something much broader, um, like a cultural milieu or a kind of strata of, of classical music culture that really encompasses everybody from like the people listening through to the music publishers, the music educators, the broadcasters, the composers. And I think in the book, uh, what draws these particular sort of this particular group of people together is this interest in, uh, well, either promoting classical music to a bigger audience or, you know, if you're on the listener end, this sort of aspiration to broaden their knowledge of uh, an appreciation of classical music. Um, so, yeah, and I guess I guess an example then of something that would be a kind of middlebrow culture, you've already mentioned the proms. Um, I think that's a really... Um, yeah, it's a really powerful example. You know, you've got the people there who are putting the programs together. You've got composers who might be writing music that's played there. Um, you've got the critics who are reviewing the concerts or writing program notes. You've got the audiences in attendance. Um, and somehow, you know, in, in the mix of all these things, um, there's an interest in making classical music, you know, more accessible, broadening one's taste. Um, and yeah, so that's a kind of example of middle of this middlebrow culture in practice, I think. Lovely. And so... Bringing those things sort of together, you introduce us at the beginning where you talk about sort of this late Victorian liberalism um, coming into sort of 1920s, um, that these things all sort of come together, that there's this idea of art appreciation is, is a sort of attentive way of listening, um, that middlebrow culture is, well, it's, at least it's better than lowbrow and maybe it's on the way to highbrow appreciation. Um, and throughout all of this, there was this really quite strong idea that the public needed to be trained to have leisure, to relax, um, and or how to use relaxing time. Um, so given that that is perhaps a little bit not what we're used to right now, um, could you explain for us kind of what this idea was where it was coming from, sort of who were the proponents of this idea that the public needed this sort of training? Yeah, so um, I guess I, sh I should have said uh, as well that there's a really strong paternalistic element to, to this middlebrow culture. Um, and I think this is, you know, it's one aspect of it that has uh, contributed to the very negative press that the middlebrows had in, you know, some of the recent scholarship um, or, or, mu or musical scholarship on this on this concept um I guess because you know we live in a day and age where well as you said you know the idea that 
um, you know, I as a classical musician might know something that would benefit you is just, you know, is basically seen as downright snobby. Um, and I do think there's an element of that. I guess, that, you know, the other part of it that I think is very real for the people involved in, in these middle-brow educational initiatives is that, you know, they have a genuine love of interest in passion for classical music. Um, and there's a real, yeah, you know, a lot of what they're doing isn't just about... Um, it's sort of yeah it's like paternalistic superiority but it's really about wanting to share this great passion that they have in their life and I think you know yeah a, a sort of genuine belief that you know that the tools that they've developed for listening to music for helping themselves to understand and appreciate it better will actually enhance the public's enjoyment Um so yeah different people come down on different sides of, of the paternalism debate but I think yeah there's definitely something for me that feels important to um sort of recuperate or allow space for the very positive aspirations that you know these these educators had even if you know we also have to acknowledge that there was always a you know a sort of snobbery involved in that um anyway this is a, it's a sidetrack to your question about um why the public needed to be trained for leisure um yeah and i guess what well, i was thinking about this um this question and the thing that immediately came to my mind was um aldous huxley's brave new world i don't know whether you've ever read this um yeah it's one of oh okay there we go um so it's one of my favorite books of all time possibly my favorite book of all time and the and yeah I guess the thing that I was thinking about if you remember the feelies when um the yeah when you know when when the characters in the book have a chance for some downtime from work what they all do is they go to the feelies which is a bit like the movies but a kind of amped up version where you've got you know sort of uh physical effects going on as well um and they take this drug soma and the idea, I guess what Huxley depicts there is a situation where um, basically the leisure time that the workers have is just the chance to completely escape from the reality of their lives. Um, and I think he captures that, you know, really, really powerfully, particularly with this, you know, idea of them actually taking a drug. And I think that the, you know, the, the situation that's described there was the thing that, um you know a, a certain strand of the educated class in Britain so I'm thinking like people it's a bit hard to pin down you know it's not a, a sort of defined group but individuals who um like our cultural commentators perhaps uh, based in universities writing in newspapers I guess people from a kind of educated yeah educated literate background and perceive this kind of leisure where you're just supposedly escaping from the reality of everyday life as a real problem um, how they get to this point, I guess there's a number of different, uh, yeah, it's a response to a number of different changes that are taking place in British society. Um, one of them has to do with the advances in manufacturing methods. Um, I think the Fordian assembly line is the most sort of powerful example of this. Um, and again, I mean, this is something I think Huxley really captures in Brave New World, you know, this idea of people being even, you know, at the level of their genetic creation, just being uh, yeah, designed to fulfil a very specific limited role within society. Um, and yeah, that this, you know, you also have this in the kind of idea of the Fordian assembly line where that kind of industrial manufacturing job has been reduced to the simplest action. Um, and yeah, that this on the one hand aids capitalist productivity, but at the same time, it seems to make work much more boring than it's been before. So there's a kind of anxiety that people, the, the jobs that people are doing have become more mind numbing and more tedious. Um, so that's one aspect of this. There's also um, this question about 
mass media and um, the sort of new forms of leisure that are becoming available. And um, I've talked about radio and gramophone a bit already. Um, Cinema is another massive uh, sort of player in in the leisure industry here um, and Hollywood film. And yeah, that much of these, many of these new mass media become very strongly associated with Americanization, which is another anxiety in Britain. And um, yeah, it's a sort of concern that, that when people have their free time, that rather than spending it on a kind of wholesome pursuit that's going to be, you know, self-improving or, or you know, ameliorating, benefiting their life, that they're just going to go and, you know, watch some trashy, second-rate cultural product somewhere and not really engage with it in a, you know, thinking way. And I think, you know, the, the other sort of aspect in all of the back of this that is, um, you know, you have to remember that certainly in the 20s and 30s that this, you know, although Britain itself doesn't have extremist politics um, to anything like the degree they have them on the continent, um, that, you know, there's a very much an awareness that extremist politics, you know, the far right and far left are a growing presence in the world. Um, and so I think, you know, there's always a political edge to these debates as well, a kind of anxiety that leisure misspent is going to um, sort of, yeah, fuel political extremism ultimately. Um, so yeah, I, what they, what, I guess, what these Middlebrow educators do is they imagine that there's a different version of leisure time, which is one spent um, doing elevating pastimes, you know, developing yourself as an individual, expanding your knowledge, um, developing sort of a breadth of opinions, and that you know, partly this is going to make you a better person, but that also it will help to safeguard a sort of democratic middle of the road society um because uh yeah because people aren't going to be you know blindsided by extremist politics yeah it has this idea of sort of it's good for you and it makes you a good citizen for everyone else yeah absolutely and i think that the thing about citizenship is um again very much a, a sort of hangover from the late victorian period um the other major change in this period is the um, expansion of the franchise so more people getting the right to vote and, and that brings with it all these anxieties about, you know, are the public going to exercise their right to vote, you know, with due diligence and care? Um, and yeah, so a sort of new impetus from, you know, that political perspective as well to, um, you know, supposedly to educate the public so that they can make, you know, what's perceived to be good, good, sensible, rational political decisions now that they are empowered and have that right to vote. So... Now that you've sort of introduced us to the main themes, right, we, we now understand what art appreciation means. We know what Middlebrow culture kind of generally looks like, but also how it's very subjective. Um, and we know kind of about this paternalistic aspect of there's these political anxieties, the workplace is changing. Um, and all of this sort of comes together as some of the threads that we then follow through your case study chapters. Um, and that's kind of, again, joy for an interview is to have big themes and now we're going to go whistle stop tour of some of your case studies um and I particularly want to sort of look at one of these aspects that you kind of poke at is um there seems to be quite a few people that you describe that are very certain that there is the artistic sphere and the commercial sphere and the two are sometimes at odds sometimes they overlap but awkwardly but these are two distinct things and in fact, you argue quite persuasively throughout the book that this idea that these two things are somehow separate or even at odds was, quote, more an ideological than a material reality. So I was wondering if you could, perhaps through one of your case studies, explain to us why this was very much a false dichotomy. 
Yeah, for sure. Um, I should say as well, I think that the that actual phrase um, was more an ideological than a material reality um, is uh, one that I borrowed from Genevieve Bravenel's book, Americanizing Britain, um, where she touches on, uh, yeah, touches on some of these questions a little bit in her introduction. Um, but yeah, so it's, I guess to, to uh, so yeah, in saying that, that the, this discussion about the relationship between art and commerce that um, is something that's been really thought about quite a lot by uh, scholars of modernism and also literary scholars. And um, the other kind of big name that springs to mind is, is Rainey's, Lawrence Rainey and his Institutions of Modernism. Um, I guess what I was interested in doing in, in this book was thinking about how some of those discussions apply to musical culture um, and also specifically to this kind of middle-brow uh, milieu within that. Um, and I think probably the yeah the best example to give from the book uh, you know to illustrate this are the Robert Mayer concerts that I talk about in the second chapter. Um, so this was an initiative that began in interwar period and was um, yeah really designed to promote classical music to a young audience. So these are concerts for children. Um, they begin in London and they end up being a sort of massive national enterprise. I mean, literally all over the country. So very yeah have a very wide impact. Um, and you see this kind of tension between uh, a commitment to artistic ideals and the reality of an investment in the kind of commercial sphere, on the other hand, very powerfully through these concerts. Um, so th they're set up as, you know, very explicitly as a charitable initiative. And the founder, Robert Mayer, you know, went to lengths on many occasions to emphasise that these are non-commercial in character. That's, you know, literally that's how he described them. Um, so very much in terms of the sort of ideology, how he's promoting these events, um, you know, he, he's explicitly trying to push them into a non-commercial box. And he really uses the, the sort of charitable element of them to help uh, to help emphasize that. But I think at the same time, um, you know, once you start digging into them, it's really clear that money is just such a central part of these concerts on so many levels. Um, so for one thing, there's the fact that part of what he was also trying to do um, and again this is his phrase was to get the children into the habit of paying for tickets um, you know so there's an awareness on his part that you know basically the concert industry is just that it is an industry and if there aren't people to buy tickets you know that there won't be bums on seats in concert halls and therefore there won't ultimately be a concert there won't be musicians um, so yeah so he's really trying here to get children into this idea that you know art is something music is something worth paying for um, and, you know, often comparisons are drawn in this regard with the situation in America, um, you know, where there's a perception that audiences really are happy to pay good money for concerts and that this in turn has sort of fueled um, an increase in improvement in performance standards. So there's there's kind of that. There's then related to this, you know, all the decisions that go into about the actual pricing of tickets, um, you know, so even even though this is a charitable venture, um, you know, that they're, they're, yeah, thinking carefully about, you know, how they can maximise sales by, for example, you know, creating blocks of tickets that schools could then pass around between pupils. Um, and also, you know, when they're in poorer areas, you know, charging relatively less to try and encourage greater attendance. So all the sort of mechanics, um, yeah, monetary considerations that go into organising a concert are very much there. And then, uh, you know, another aspect uh, sort of where the commercial considerations come into play is also in the programming. Um, so, you know, there's evidence that uh, what went on the programmes in these concerts was very much influenced by, uh, yeah, that what was available, for example, on gramophone record, the kind of music that people would know and therefore what they would pay money to hear. Um, there's a kind of old, uh, well-known 
reality in um you know for concert organizers that you know audiences are much more likely to buy tickets to attend a concert of you know something they know rather than some random piece by a random composer they've never heard of um so yeah all of those considerations that shape you know the music that's actually played um and then you know the programs themselves which included adverts from various local businesses and industries and also the relationships with the gramophone companies who were advertising in the programs so you know in all these ways you know money is very much changing hands around these events um, and yeah it's kind of a central part of how they're being organized so I think you know what you can see here is the you know the, yeah so there is this commitment to uh, kind of great works of art you know Mayer talks about wanting to introduce children to you know the, the kind of great music of the German greats he says you know all this stuff that he grew up with as a child you know Bach and Beethoven uh, Mozart Handel you know the music that he really thinks is is amazing um, and yeah that he would sort of rate as kind of autonomous art music but at the same time you know the reality of these concerts is you know so much embedded in, in commercial concerns um, and yeah, I guess to so just to, to finish this thought, the way that the, I guess what the middle brow brings to this um, that's sort of a bit distinct from some of the discussions that have gone on within um, literary studies and studies of modernism. Um, and, I, you know, I think that the the thing that's particularly fascinating, I find particularly fascinating about the middle brow is that um, it it lays bare the kind of mechanics of cultural production much more clearly I think than um you know for example like a modernist book um because it has this you know all the time behind these initiatives there's this dual and somewhat contradictory commitment you know on the one hand um you know these middle brow initiatives are always trying to uphold the idea of art music as prestigious as elitist as having this kind of um yeah transcendent autonomous value and yet at the same time they're very explicitly trying to increase popularity and promote you know the music to a bigger audience and so what you get in these kinds of programs is you know or undertakings is all yeah all the mechanics of cultural production that are uncomfortably on show um, and you know probably because of that that the people organizing them you know often have to go to even greater lengths to deny the reality of you know their complicity in the marketplace this episode is brought to you by shopify do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. This was one of the things that was particularly interesting was kind of these different layers of what was said in some ways, but then what was done um, and it really showcases that on a lot of these issues, these were quite active debates. Um, things weren't really resolved, which I suppose is great for you as a historian to be able to trace them for us. Um, and so to sort of stay on this idea of kind of education, which we've touched on a few times, um, I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about these debates around how to teach music and how to teach music appreciation, um, and particularly some of the examples that stuck most in my mind around this issue were from the music critics and sort of their opinions on this. Could you tell us about that? Yeah, for sure. Um, so I guess one of the most contentious issues that, that came up, um, and this is, uh, yeah, I guess was, was relevant for the adult education initiatives, but particularly a source of contention, you know, in, where children were concerned, was using stories to um, help children uh, familiarise themselves with musical form. Um, and again, I think, you know, the most powerful example of this uh, 
well, both in the book and I guess of all the things that I came across, you know, in, in researching this, was a, a Robert Mayer concert that took place um, in the mid-1920s when they did a performance of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. It's like incredibly famous work. And um, Malcolm Sargent uh, was conducting this. And so what usually happened at these children's concerts was um, that the conductor would stand up and say a few words about the piece of music to kind of try and prepare the children for what was coming next. And then after he'd said that, they'd listen to the piece. Um, and at this particular concert, um, Sargent uh, decided to describe the sort of form of Beethoven's fifth, the first movement of Beethoven's fifth symphony um, uh, through the story of Jack and the Beanstalk. Um, so he he said to the children that the opening theme, the da-da-da-da, sort of very famous motif, um, was the giant singing fee-fi-fo-fum. Um, and then, you know, that, that being what in musical terms we'd call the first subject, so the kind of first tune in the piece, and then that the second main tune, or what we'd call the second subject, was the giant's wife um, saying, never mind for naught can harm me. So he had these, you know, these two uh, sort of key melodic phrases from which really the whole movement, you know, the whole of this first movement of the symphony is built. Um, and he put them through the narrative or told them, explained them through the narrative of Jack and the Beanstalk. Um, now, this caused absolute uproar uh, in the critical press. Um, I mean, it was such an outrage that they were still discussing it, you know, more than a year after the event, um, which is, uh, yeah, I found quite interesting just how wound up about this particular instance they came, they, they became. And I think, you know, really the what was at, at stake for them here was, um, so on the one hand, that question about how you can make classical music that has these complicated structures and forms intelligible to a young audience who don't have a lot of musical knowledge and then but how you can do that in a way that you're still protecting the kind of yeah like prestige of the music um so one of the music critics who was particularly prolific uh, you know complaining about this event Harvey Grace um he I mean from his mind that all this was going to do was saddle the music with these kind of incongruous associations you know that children would forever every time they heard this piece all the way until their dying day they would be thinking about giants and you know Jack and the Beanstalk and you know that this for in Grace's mind this was basically disrespectful to um something that you know he understood as a kind of great abstract work of art that didn't have any any story associated with it um so yeah that this debate about using stories uh, which i should add was not um also was not something that was new in the 1920s um it's you know really a, a kind of hangover again from the late victorian period um that you know but that becomes you know very contentious um yeah, and particularly in terms of the kind of impact that it has, whether whether um, adding these kinds of stories to music is somehow going to damage, you know, the music itself. Um, another, um, you know, one of the other key debates that they have is also about um, teaching children about the instruments of the orchestra. And um, this might have been something that uh, you did at school. It was certainly something I had to do, you know, where you they play, you get played a little bit of a piece and you have to try and write down all the instruments that are playing just from the sound of hearing them. Um, and again, this is something that's incredibly common in music appreciation, you know, not just uh, here, but also in, in America on the other side of the Atlantic. Um, but again, you know, there's a, th this becomes very contentious because the critics fear that what is happening is that children are, and, you know, both children and adults are just being encouraged to um, sort of gain factual information about music that they can just reel off and that this doesn't actually help them to kind of really understand or get inside the music um, you know so your sort of worst case scenario of this would be somebody who can identify every single instrument in you know like a 
particular movement of a symphony that's playing, but can't actually say anything more about the music than just these kinds of facts, you know, factual recognition uh, exercise that they've learned. Um, so, yeah, I guess those were two of the sort of big uh, methods that they were using that were particularly contentious. Um, and it's interesting your comment about um, observation that, you know, many of these debates seem not to be resolved throughout the period uh, that I was dealing with in the book, um, which is absolutely true. Um, and I guess what's also interesting to me is the way that many of the same issues are actually still raging in music education today. Um, one of the most uh, sort of hot topics uh, for, for music education, particularly, I guess, at university level at the moment, is this the question about whether we teach children to read Western staff notation um, or te expect our students to be able to read this. Um, so that's Western staff notation is what most like Western classical music's written in. So if you've ever like, yeah, played a piano piece or studied an instrument, it's probably what you'll have been taught to read. Um, so yeah, whether we need to be teaching them to read read music like this, or whether actually it's all right for them just to be able, you know, to listen and use use their kind of oral uh, oral faculties. Um, and again, you know, that's a debate that has its roots right back in you know the late Victorian period. Um, so yeah, uh, absolutely unresolved in the 1920s, still unresolved at mid-century, and still unresolved in many cases today. <laughs> And that, in fact, um, I think is very true um, and therefore it makes it all the more interesting to understand sort of where a lot of these debates not necessarily came from, um, but how they've manifested with the technologies that we're more familiar with now. And there's a pretty direct line between some of these radio programs and films and things and things that we do now in the classroom. Um, and so speaking of one of them, you have another case study looking at an early BBC programme titled Music and the Ordinary Listener. So moving from talking about children's education to more adult-focused education. Um, tell us about this particular programme and how it's sort of very middle-brow, but kind of by oscillating between tradition and innovation. Um, it doesn't always seem to have a solid grasp of what it is and instead kind of swings between two different things. Um, what yeah. was what was the purpose of this program? What what was sort of going on with it? Yeah, so this um, this is a program that started in early 1926, um, and really the idea behind it was to try and teach um, adult adult listeners how to have a sort of ever deeper understanding and appreciation of classical music from their armchair. Um, so, you know, this is specifically targeting those people sitting at home in their front room, relaxing at the end of their day, um, who might uh, sort of, yeah, might sort of, day, you know, doze off whilst they're listening to music or not be, you know, fully attending to it. Um, and yeah, really using the radio to give them some new tools to be able to stay more engaged as listeners. Um, and I guess, yeah, so aspects of this programme that are kind of uh, are new and in innovative. So when the programme starts, the BBC's only really been around for a couple of years. And, you know, even radio itself is a comparatively new phenomenon. Um, and Walford Davis, who was the presenter of this programme, and who's also a, um, you know, a, yeah, I guess a very well established composer. He was master of the uh, King's music for a while during his life. So he's quite a kind of, you know, big name in the musical British musical establishment in this period. Um, but he basically, you know, sees radio and sees that this medium has particular promise as a vehicle for music education, um, even more so than, um, you know, books, because it, what you're able to do on the radio, of course, is to broadcast sound. You know, so whereas if you want to teach people music education through a book, um, you're either going to have to just describe the music using words or you're going to require them to be able to read the score um, and, you know, you know, possibly even to the degree of 
of hearing that music in their head just by looking at the notes on the page, um, you know, which is it's really quite an advanced skill. Actually, with the radio, you know, you can just play pieces of music and people can hear them. So it's a kind of ideal medium for um, delivering music education classes. Um, and again, the scale on which this is possible, you know, right from the beginning, this programme goes out from London to all of the national stations. So this is a much, much bigger audience uh, than you could you know, reach in a classroom or, um, you know, probably through. Uh, through a kind of music education manual so this the kind of idea of using radio in this way is really yeah timely new and obviously of its moment um but at the same time when Walford Davis you know settles down to to kind of put these programs together there's so many ways in which you know basically he's drawing on late 19th century music education practices um so you know for one thing he sets these up as a kind of lecture recital so he sits at the keyboard he talks a little bit, he plays a little bit, he talks a little bit more, he plays a little bit more. Um, and that model of kind of lecture recital was one that had been being used by music educators for decades. Um, he's also limits his discussion, you know, to the kinds of music that was regularly heard on concert programmes. Um, so there's a lot of Beethoven and a lot of Bach, um, a bit of Handel. So these kinds of the great names of classical music that, that figure centrally. And again, you know, these are the, you know, the composers that you would have heard in your kind of 19th century concert halls. So in terms of his the repertoire he's dealing with, there's you know nothing particularly new. Um, and also, you know, the kinds of analytical tools that he's promoting, um, study of harmony, study of melody, study of form, um, these are all things that have become sort of established parts of music education already. Um, so in terms of the kind of pedagogy he's using, um, you know, he's very much drawing on these old traditions. Um, I think even more interesting, though, is the way in which um, he also promotes kind of 19th century, late 19th century ideologies through the programme. Um, and in particular, he's really invested in this idea of, of music as being autonomous. Um, so by which I mean uh, music as having a kind of transcendental quality that it exists on some, you know, plane above, you know, over and above you know, the moment of performance or the notes on the page. Um, yeah, and it has this this kind of music for music's sake. Um, and, you know, this is really an idea from kind of, you know, that's become very prevalent uh, in late romanticism and that he takes takes and promotes through these broadcasts. Um, and, uh, yeah, I guess associated with that then, this idea that, you know, there's a kind of correct way, proper way to listen to classical music uh, that's also, you know, a kind of late 19th century ideology. So, yeah, new medium and um, new inspiration for using that medium in this modern way and and yet at the same time kind of the, the content of the broadcast is in many ways very old. Thank you for explaining uh, that combination of things it, it definitely sounds like it would be quite interesting as a listener but I can also see now that you've explained in your earlier answer why critics may not be thrilled um, with some aspects of it um, and so to continue this idea of the debate that hasn't been resolved Moving from the 1920s now to sort of post-war British culture, post-World War II, obviously, British culture, what were the conflicting visions for culture and music um, in that time period? And how did the film that you examine, Instruments of the Orchestra, exemplify the tensions about how music appreciation should be in this new world? Yeah, great. Thank you. So the, the 1940s, um, yeah, the aftermath of the Second World War is obviously this It's this kind of great moment of looking forward and um, sort of real interesting cultural renewal and, yeah, building a kind of new and better world after the trauma that was World War II. 
Um, and really what you see at this time are there these, these two sort of conflicting visions of what British culture, as it were, should mean. Um, and these really have to do with the question about like who is represented in and through a national culture. So is this the culture of the nation in the broadest sense, i.e. of like all the, the cultural interests of the general voting public? Um, or rather, is national culture something closer to the kind of best that a nation has to offer to the world? Um, or indeed, you know, to showcase to its own its own population. And, and the reason, so yeah, you've got these two kind of different perspectives on national culture. On the one hand, is this sort of, yeah, way of showing showing off what, you know, what is the best in our cultural heritage versus the kind of national culture, what people actually are interested in. Um, and the reason that this becomes such a hot topic in the 1940s um, is because this is also the moment when, for the first time, there's a prolonged initiative to provide state funding for the arts. Um, so in 1939, shortly after the outbreak of World War II, is when the Council for the Encouragement of Music and the Arts is uh, started. And that becomes the Arts Council at the end of the war. Um, and that is, you know, the Arts Council that still exists today. So for the first time, you know, you've got the government pouring money into the arts um, on a scale, you know, they haven't done before. So really this question about about what national culture means, what it should look like, where those that kind of funding and those resources are going to go is a really pertinent one. Um, so what does this mean or how does it kind of outwork itself in terms of music? So there's one one sort of set of ideas that have really to do with a desire to increase amateur participation in the arts. And this is usually centred around performance. Um, and again, you know, one of the sort of branch of the, the Council for the Encouragement of Music and the Arts work that connects with this is sending out, they have a kind of initiative to send out musicians all across the countryside to rural areas uh, to try and support and increase local music making. So this is a version of national culture that's, yeah, really centred on performance and amateur involvement. Um, the other vision is much more concerned with channeling resources into the best composers and the best companies um, and using these, yeah, to sort of showcase, you know, the best that British culture has to offer. And I think Instruments of the Orchestra is really interesting as a project because it very much cuts across these two sort of different, uh, yeah, different agendas that are pulling in seemingly different directions. Um, so this, it was a film initially um, that was made for the, pupils of the new secondary modern schools and um, so the, the secondary modern schools were um, institutions that were set up in the aftermath of the second world war at this moment when secondary education um, is made compulsory on a sort of mass scale for the first time so they have to create these new schools to cater for this new kind of secondary public um, and this film is one of the uh, initiatives that the Ministry of Education and the Ministry of Information have um, together to try and uh, yeah promote classical music um, in these institutions um, with uh, yeah I guess behind that's an idea that they're going to give a kind of holistic education experience so not just teaching pupils about a kind of vocational you know speciality or you know kind of going down that narrow path but giving them something that's much more holistic um, so the you know the film is made very much with the non-expert general public in mind um, so kind of connecting with amateurs in that way um, but at the same time, uh, it features several of the biggest names in British in the British music scene. Um, so Benjamin Britten, uh, the composer, writes the music for this. Um, uh, it's a score that's now much better known uh, in its, its sort of concert hall form as um, the Young Person's Guide to the Orchestra. So that that score was originally written for this film, um, and Benjamin Britten is you know is uh, sort of on the cusp of becoming one of you know the the greatest figures in the, in British music at this point. 
Um, and then the, the conductor, Malcolm Sargent, who's also involved, um, who you know was previously involved in the Robert Mayer concerts, um, but again, you know, is very much a big name in, in British music. Um, so, it, so yeah, so in that sense, there's this kind of marrying of, of sort of the best in British culture with an initiative that's aimed at the general public. But I think the most interesting thing, um, again, is the sort of ideological aspect of this um, and the sort of motivation for the film, um, which was really, you know, those creating it hoped that the film was going to um, encourage a form of active listening. Um, and again, you know, this is being imagined as a form of listening that's distinct from the kind of passive listening that supposedly, you know, the public engaged with when they were listening to popular music. Um, so they're really imagining listening here as a, a kind of site for participation. So this is very much a vision of a participatory national culture, um, but it's one where the public are participating as active listeners uh, rather than as kind of amateur performers. Um, yeah, and I think it's particularly pertinent, you know, that they decided to use a film to try and uh, realise this vision of active listening or this idea of active listening. Um, because obviously, as you know, we've mentioned movies were very much the domain of Hollywood at this time. Um, and so, you know, tended to, that medium tended to be associated with all the sort of negative trappings of, you know, mass media glamour and escapism. And really what they're trying to do here is take that, yeah, take that film medium and use it for a sort of loftier supposedly loftier um, more educational purpose and yet another example of where sort of the dichotomy between high art and commercial aspects are probably not as distinct as they might have argued at the time no indeed and yeah actually this film is another really good example of that because um in the end that the, the um they end up distributing it through um, MGM as well and in local cinemas. And there's a lot of um, contention about this at the Ministry of Education because, um, you know, written into, in, I guess, in order to secure those commercial contracts, um, they had to uh, sort of put limits on their um, charitable use of the film. Um, but obviously, you know, the people who are in charge of the, the coffers um, were very much in favour of of reaping the sort of pecuniary benefits of, of mm -hmm. commercial distribution. Um, so, yeah, you absolutely have that tension here as well. Fascinating. Um, so to move to one of your later case studies, um, still very much in this theme of sort of education, um, you describe for us sort of more about how music education, especially for adults, continues in post-war Britain, um, both sort of within universities and also in addition to them and sort of extramural methods. Um, but you argue that music education in post-war Britain in these senses was, quote, saddled with a host of negative connotations. Why? Yeah. Um, so this, uh, the comment about um, it being saddled with a host of negative connotations is very much um, to do, I guess, with music appreciation specifically. I guess what I was interested in in this chapter was the way in which um, many of the practices and principles of music appreciation end up influencing the kind of music teaching that happens in universities um, and I guess I was particularly interested in this because uh, nowadays music appreciation <laughs> still has a really dubious press um, and you know yeah there it's very common for academics to sort of discredit this part of our of our disciplinary history and yet actually you know you don't have to dig very deep to see that um, many yeah much of the sort of legacy of music appreciation can really be seen in a very obvious way um, in post-war uh, university music education um, so yeah and essentially I guess the, the issues with it boil down to the tension that often underpins outreach initiatives um, where you know on the one hand you've got a, a desire to promote academic ideals and retain some of their scholarly 
uh, sort of integrity and value and depth. Uh, but at the same time, you're trying to explain them uh, to a much broader audience. And, you know, that in, in doing so, there's always this risk, this fear uh, that, of those sort of, yeah, the academic quality of that um, discussion being dumbed down. Um, and I think, you know, if we take extramural departments in particular and extramural, extramural music, um, you know, this has already a really unstable place within the post-war British university establishment, precisely because um, it sort of sits in between. You know, it, these are outreach initiatives. They are formally part of the universities, and yet they're not, um, they're sort of on the edge on the edge of university life. Um, so they tend to have their own departments. And um, I talked specifically about the department at Birmingham, which was the extramural department there, which was one of the biggest in the country. Um, so, you know, the university has its own department. Um, and it has university funding and, you know, there are all the kind of usual university positions associated with that, like professorial chairs. Um, and yet at the same time, what these departments are trying to do is to offer something that's not strictly a, a university degree. So they want to offer a university level programme, uh, but not actually a degree. So they're doing this through sort of one off courses. You know, a student might take one course, they might take 50 courses, you don't know. Um, and the, the way that these are taught is also quite decentralised. And um, so oftentimes, you know, there's the central base, I guess, the Birmingham example, they have the central base in Birmingham, where a certain amount of teaching happens, and um, by sort of formal, you know, you know, university tutors, you know, employed by the university, uh, tutors employed by the university, directly, but then they also have you know, peripatetic teachers who go out around the sort of Cotswolds and all the suburbs of Birmingham, um, delivering, you know, a little shorter courses in these kind of, you know, more regional districts. And what this means is, you know, you've got a very decentralised approach to the teaching um, that results in a quite a wide range of standards and themes being covered. So really all those, um, you know, that sort of tension, you know, between trying to diversify access whilst at the same time retaining some sense of quality or standard are kind of appropriate to a university level is very much um, sort of running through these initiatives. Um, and then I think, you know, there's also some specific challenges that uh, music faces um, that have to do really with its uh, sort of legacy um, coming out of uh, the liberal arts tradition, where, you know, within the liberal arts, the emphasis is really on uh, breadth of knowledge and, and sort of diversity of understanding. And that in contrast to the general trend in the post-war university environment, which is towards specialisation and sort of professionalisation. And so you get this, this challenge facing music educators that on the one hand, you know, they're very committed to broadening taste. And yet there's this question about how you can broaden taste in such a way that you're not just... Um, yeah, giving people a sort of very general superficial view of music history, but, you know, trying to, to broaden taste in a way that still appears to be specialist and in-depth. Um, and, you know, the, the stakes here, I guess, ultimately are high, because if if music education, if music appreciation, if these kinds of programmes can't be seen to be specialist enough, um, then ultimately their, you know, existence within the university environment, uh, you know, might be, might come into question. Um, so, yeah, so I, I guess it's the... Yeah, and then where does music appreciation fit into this? That I think the you know much of the sort of legacy of this movement. Um, yeah, I guess I've talked about the fact you know that it, it already had all these very dubious associations. Um, you know, some people who thought its teaching methods sort of relied too much on like airy fantasy. Um, some people who perceived it to be like overly technical, uh, but you know not really delivering a true musical understanding. Um, some people who were really uncomfortable about the use of mechanical technologies and, you know, that 
using technology rather than teaching performance was a problem. So music appreciation has got all, you know, its own set of issues um, that you then, you know, add into the mix with with the um, sort of challenges of being an extramural department. Um, and you have something that, you know, is, is very, yeah, is highly contested. Mm. I think this will resonate with a lot of our listeners um, in terms of university politics um, yeah, and the challenges sure. of um, teaching. And I think it really helps sort of draw through these many different aspects that music appreciation, art appreciation, wasn't just sort of something that only concerned children or only concerned adults. It sort of, as you showed, I think, including through this interview, it touches on so many aspects um, of a society. Um, and University of Birmingham, I think, was a good example to kind of draw out the ways that that complicated academia as well. Yeah, um, yes, very much so. So now that we've toured your book in a way, um, both the general themes and the some of the specific case studies, um, I'd love to peek a little bit behind the curtain of your research process, the writing process of this book. Uh, you already explained to us at the beginning about how you thought about the methodology, how this was influenced by other scholars in the field. Um, but my sort of traditional question for authors is, given that you have spent so much time with this, um, presumably the things that surprised readers like myself, who are not experts, are probably not the same for you. So was there something in particular that you came across during this process that maybe wasn't what you expected? Um, sometimes these can be big or small or things that didn't even make it into the book. Yeah, so um, I guess there are uh, a couple of surprises. Um, one of them, and this is in the book, uh, was just how high the stakes seemed to have been for the people who were involved in these debates. Um, I was particularly struck when I was reading um, some of the discussions that went on in post-war Britain about music education. And, you know, you literally get critics predicting the end of the world as we know it, the downfall of society, if music education uh, isn't sort of set on the right track. And I think, I yeah, I found that very interesting because it, um, I guess on the one hand, like, you know, at a distance of 40, 50, 60 odd years, it seems really extreme, right? It's like, how can you possibly believe that music education, um, you know, was was so fundamental to the survival of society? It seems, I mean, yeah, almost delusional. And yet, I guess at the same time, there was there's something about that that I think really speaks to just how powerfully um, the arts configure in people's lives, right? You know, and, and also how much they can become a touchstone um, for kind of bigger issues that we're facing so I think yeah that just that the sort of level of emotion in these debates was one one surprise um the other thing that also surprised me which perhaps shouldn't have surprised me but did was how many people I've spoken to about the book who seem to have had a living memory of one or other of the initiatives that I wrote about um so the first time I ever gave a paper on this book I was talking about um yeah material from the the chapter about Benjamin Britten and instruments of the orchestra. Um, this was at a conference, uh, mostly of literary scholars, um, literary scholars plus me and uh, yeah, one other sort of cultural historian from a slightly different field. And um, afterwards, when I'd, I'd finished this paper, one of the um, other people there came up to me and said, oh, we watched that film at school. Um, and I had a similar experience, actually, then, you know, when I was, uh, you know, this orchestra I used to play in, in Cambridge, talking to some of the people there, um, and, you know, a number of them who said they'd attended Robert Mayer concerts as a child or as children. Um, so, yeah, I guess I never I never did anything with that. I didn't try to quantify it. But that, I, yeah, I guess it, 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 
and it probably shouldn't have surprised me because one of the arguments I make about Middlebrow culture is that it was so pervasive, you know, throughout, you know, the mid 20th century Britain that these educational initiatives are really part of the sort of rich fabric of Britain's musical culture. Um, so, yeah, I probably shouldn't have been surprised, um, but I was surprised. Um, and yeah, I guess at the same time, I found that, you know, the number of these chance conversations I'd had um, where people actually recalled things that I was writing about um, really testifies to the reality of how pervasive this culture was and its legacy. Um, so, yeah, there was a kind of reassuring thing that came out of that surprising thing. It's always nice, you know, when you, you realise that your vision of history kind of tallies up with something resembling a real life experience of it. Yeah, that's brilliant. Um, I think it also really speaks to some of the divisions you talk about in the book between kind of what the critics were all fired up about and yet what actual people were experiencing. Um, and I think the book does a really nice job of making sure that we don't forget the experience of ordinary people um, and don't end up accidentally only focusing on the people with bylines in newspapers. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, and I think actually, the I mean, that yeah, the question about ordinary people, and there's probably a bit more to say about this in a moment, it's, it, I guess it's one of the things that I felt the book itself didn't actually do in as much depth or perhaps as well as it could have done um but I guess yeah it was given that it was very reassuring to have these kinds of encounters to you know to yeah sort of um put some uh yeah I guess make make feel more real the thing that either I'd sort of set out to do in the first place yeah well to ask then my final question which it seems like you might even be hinting at which would be quite exciting <laughs> um now that this book is done what are you working on now or next yeah, so I've got um, a couple of projects that uh, I'm sort of just beginning to make some headway with. Um, so the first of these, uh, and this picks up on yeah, what I was just alluding to. So really, um, this project, I guess, is an attempt to address that the gap between what I set out to do in the art of appreciation and what I actually ended up doing. Um, because I'd really wanted to write about public musical interests and their listening. But I think what I ended up doing was much more telling the story uh, kind of from the perspective of the people organising these initiatives. Um, there are moments in the book where kind of the public voice comes in, um, whether that's from like comments in newspapers or it's sort of those rare occasions where you've got letters written in um, to broadcasters or, you know, uh, in the, the chapter about Peter Maxwell Davis, there's some records of what his, you know, the, the children involved in playing his music thought about it. But, you know, these are really just kind of, um, yeah, like tiny moments within, you know, a, a much bigger story that's really focused around the organisers and yeah I mean as I said that's basically because that was the information that was you know readily available to me um, as a, a post uh, postdoctoral researcher um, but uh, yeah I guess I've sort of been left with this nagging dissatisfaction about about the absence of the everyday listener's voice from this account um, and then I found out that there's a huge collection of fan, fan mail in the Bernstein archive in New York so one of the projects that I'm hoping to do um, is to basically work on you know spend some time sorry not in New York in Washington um yeah to spend some time working on this collection of fan mail um and using that as a way of recovering some of you know the yeah the like everyday public's experiences um of classical music and their responses to it um so Bernstein I guess doesn't feature it at great length in the book because he was a an American music educator um but it's very much you know recognized as I mean probably the most high profile music educator in America in the 20th century um so I feel yeah it would be a nice counterpart to hop over the Atlantic and study a bit more in depth you know how some of these debates played out over there um but yeah using the fan mail um you know there's like 117 boxes of it or something um, wow. as a way of kind of writing the listening public back into music history a bit more 
Well, so that's, that's that sounds of- brilliant. Um, oh. And I know that, um, I think there are a lot of listeners, myself included, that always our ears perk up a bit when someone mentions such a cool sounding archive. So that sounds like a brilliant project, but it sounds yes. like you've got more than one project going on. Well, yeah, so I guess that one's contingent on getting some money to either go to Washington or, or get somebody to go to Washington for me, either which way. Um, so, I've yeah, I've sort of got that. I, that's a, a sort of longer term um, idea. The thing that I've started working on in the more immediate term um, is a which is less formed as an idea, um, but sort of more it feels more easily realisable, um, is to do a project around music and childhood in probably the 1960s and 1970s in Britain. Um, and I think, yeah, part of this, again, comes out of those conversations that I've had, you know, these chance encounters with people, um, their memories of their own uh, music educational experiences growing up. Um, I think it's also a product of the fact, you know, we are in a we're in a small child phase of life in our in our household at the moment. Um, so yeah, very much connected with kind of young people and and their what the world looks like, you know, through them. Um, and I, I think yeah, the other part of this that you know, I'm there is some music, some scholarship on music and childhood, but it's a much less developed field than say in like literary studies. And, and most of the writing that's taken place has uh, focused on. Uh, kind of either modernist music or modernist composers so you get um, you know the the story that's been told about music and childhood for the most part has centered around these kind of modernist narratives and yeah I guess again there's just that that drive to um, you know tell a version of music history that isn't about the kind of elitist performances and individuals but something that's much more connected to the kind of reality of people's lives so yeah that 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 project which is you know might look at the beginning of Suzuki teaching in Britain might look at um, some of the initiatives that on um, television in the 1960s and 70s. Um, so perhaps, yeah, filling in a bit of the sort of later part of the 20th century. So Brilliant. yes, these are the two things that I'm thinking about at the moment. Well, I think those two projects will definitely be of interest um, for our listeners, obviously myself included, um, particularly those of us who are probably not necessarily music experts um, and yet have encountered music, particularly in education and as children. Um, so while I wish you the best of luck with both of those projects, for our listeners who are eager to read your current work, um, the book that we've been discussing in this podcast episode is titled The Art of Appreciation, Music and Middlebrow Culture in Modern Britain, published by the University of California Press in 2021. So I encourage you to go off and read that. Um, and in the meantime, Dr. Kate Guthrie, who has just been sharing with us her expertise and ideas, um, best of luck with your future work. And thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much, Miranda. Yeah, thank you for your interest and for a really uh, interesting conversation today. 